Welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, an iTutor production. At iTutor, our vision is to ensure every child has access to education, regardless of circumstance. Each episode, we will be joined by pathfinders within and around the education space who are bringing about transformational change on behalf of deserving students. I am your host, Haley Spierbauer. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining today's podcast. I am beyond excited to bring back someone that I met about a decade and a half ago. Jonathan Buford, welcome to today's event. Hey, Haley. So excited to be here. Thank you for making me feel old right off the bat. I mean, that wasn't my intention, but as you say that, I'm starting to reflect on how I'm progressing up there, how we're all progressing up there. But I think that just means that we've accomplished a lot. Let's phrase it that way. Totally. I like that. Positive mindset. Very much. Absolutely. So I think uh, we'll give the spoiler alert to everybody who's listening today, but we met while working at a charter school in Harlem and your experiences in and around education, emphasis on both there, I think are some of the most fascinating of those I've heard in a particular person's journey. And I'd love if you could tell our guests exactly who you are, what you do, and why you do it. Yes, thank you. Um, fascinating is one way to describe it for sure. Circuitous in another way is definitely non traditional. So, you know, my history in education started, you know, professionally working in undergraduate admissions at NYU thinking about enrollment management, student recruitment, touring the country, talking to high school counselors and high school students and their families, reading hundreds of applications a day, making decisions. And so um, it wasn't from a traditional educator standpoint, but prior to that and throughout that, I'd been volunteering for a number of nonprofits, mentoring students, tutoring students, getting some experience on that side of things. And then obviously I went to business school after that, which is the clear next step. (laughs) But now I felt like in my experience working in education up until that point, that there were a lot of best practices from the private sector that could be brought into this space to increase, you know, organizational effectiveness, efficiency, um, taking a lot of good ideas and hard work and passion that people had in the space and making them, you know, uh, improving the execution and scalability of them. After business school, I thought I would go into consulting for a little bit to continue to learn those best practices, but I did my summer internship there and and honestly didn't like it that much. So I went straight into nonprofit management where I met you at Harlem Village Academy. So I was tasked with starting up our college programs there, which was, you know, the charter network, as you know, focused on, you know, had schools from elementary school students throughout high school. We had maybe one or two graduating classes by the time I joined, but didn't really have a formalized college counseling program. And more importantly, a college success program to take the students that had graduated through college to to increase the rate at which they earn their degrees. And so that was my first experience, really managing people, you know, building a program sort of from scratch. Um, It was incredible, you know, obviously it was based in the high school and so had very much uh, in-depth experience and touch points with the students on a daily basis uh, with the teachers and and really felt embedded in the school in an important way while still working across the network and, you know, with partner colleges and institutions and mentors and funding organizations, etc. So that was an excellent experience. I moved out to the West Coast for unrelated purposes, honestly, just because there was no winter out here and (laughs) visited for so many years. And I was like, 
it's wonderful out here. Some of my best friends are out here. I don't need to subject myself to winters anymore. And that was right after there was like a polar vortex or something. And <laughs> that was the trigger point for you. Yeah, <laughs> that specifically, like, that specific weather incident. Exactly. <laughs> Whatever a polar vortex is, I don't need to have those in my life on an ongoing basis. So moved out here. And then um, in San Francisco, I led the uh, San Francisco branch of a national nonprofit called College Track that was a college access and success organization. So it was a standalone site, um, physical site that serves students from eighth grade through college graduation, you know, holistic services, everything from tutoring, access extracurriculars, um, financial support, um, career support, obviously college counseling and college support once they were in college. And so what got to lead a team of about 50 employees kind of build up, you know, our programming there um, in a strategic way. And then oddly enough, I had been in touch with a recruiter from Google for the past like four years leading up to that um, from when I was in business school and just never really imagined what I would do at Google <laughs> with the background I had and like what I thought Google did, which was search, <laughs> you know, and like the Gmail I was using. Um, and so this um, recruiter was so patient, was so um, thoughtful, was really meeting me where I was at and continued to kind of send me roles to try to get closer to things that I could see myself doing and eventually sent me a couple of roles that were focused on um, student programs that, that really stood out to me. I ended up starting my career at Google managing these internship programs. Um, so both the recruiting aspect and the student experience aspect that were really focused on underrepresented students um, and getting them into non-technical, so business-related internships at Google in that summer before their junior year with the focus of, you know, obviously getting them that great experience, but also, you know, lining them up to potentially get full-time jobs at Google or elsewhere in the tech industry. So that was an incredible experience to just get a, some experience on that other side is my first glimpse at like, okay, I've been working so hard on the other side with the students to try to get access to college institutions or workplaces. And now, you know, being on this side, um, we really view workplaces in some cases as the kind of end goal, right, of education, whether it's during high school to get internships or the whole reason to go to college in a lot of cases is like, oh, this will benefit your career. This will give you access to more careers. And so, um, it, it had been great to get that experience. I did that for three years and then transitioned internally to a talent development focused role that was really about building programs for high school students. So getting more back to the core of what I was doing. Hey, not that circuitous, really connected. There's a theme here. I'm telling oh, you. It makes so much sense. <laughs> um, but these students are ones that you know were interested in computer science, but didn't have much experience with it. And so as they were entering college, we did summer programs with them at Google offices, at their um, universities as well. And the goal was, again, to increase their exposure, their confidence, their sense of community, their skill set within computer science at this really critical early point as they're going into introduction CS courses, which in many traditional colleges is a, is a weed out course. And you know, I can understand why it's a challenging path to pursue, but one that could be incredibly fruitful and have a lot of options for folks on the table. Exactly. Yep. And so our hypothesis is that, you know, if we can get students through those first rocky years, you know, by having this sort of experience, by going into 
that experience with a supportive community, by having mentors at a place like Google, and then ultimately, you know, getting them access to internships immediately too. After their freshman year of college, you can start doing these internships in, in tech and having that as a, as a motivator as well and to, you know, enhance your careers moving forward. So that was kind of the extent of the education experience. I pivoted internally a couple of years ago to focus more on performance equity. So it's really focused on um, people that are already at Google and how do we maximize, you know, the, our performance management systems there. So yeah, that that's the path. <laughs> yeah. But Jonathan, as I hear you say all of this, and as I, you know, have talked to you previously about the journey you're on, I, I get this theme of success helping people be more successful at their everyday and in their future. How does that land with you? Do you feel like that's a cognizant theme that you're leading with, or is that maybe just a kind of undercurrent of everything you do? I feel like you should have written my LinkedIn bio. I think that's a great (laughs) connecting thread for sure. I don't know if it was intentional, um, but it probably came out of just a natural sense of that's what I'm drawn to do, I feel like. And it's how I've view the world. And so in all of the roles I've been in and spaces I've been in, when I've had the opportunity, I think I try to focus on like seeing the best in people, seeing great potential in everyone. And the challenge is always how do you bring that out of people in a specific environment or to accomplish a specific thing? This episode has been brought to you by itutor.com, your online solution for sourcing highly qualified educators. Join districts all around the nation that use iTutor to connect with thousands of licensed educators who fulfill both core and supplemental instructional needs. Choose iTutor.com. Online education when learning can't wait. Now back to this episode. I wonder if, as you've worked in all these places and spaces with people of different ages, you think the answer to that question you just named, how do you bring it out in people, if it's different? What would you say? Is it the same for K-12 as it is for students in college, as it is for people in internships, as it is for people in their career? Or is it drastically different depending on their developmental phase? I would say yes, both. (laughs) The foundations are the same. Like everyone's a a human (laughs) at different phases. You know, I'm very much a fan of like inner child theories and psychology. And so just because you're adult doesn't mean your inner child just disappeared So a lot of the same core needs that drive your behavior as an adult are based on childhood experiences and core needs around safety, around love, around value and, you know, legacy even, you know, as you get older. And so those don't change in terms of the needs. Those definitely change with the time, but also with the individual. So I think you can focus on some of these universals, but you always have to meet everyone where they're at, not make too many assumptions and approach each person as an individual. Um, Because for some students, what's going to unlock their engagement or their motivation is very different than others. And that's the same with adults as well, or college students, working professionals, et cetera. And so um, you have to start with that sense of empathy and understanding that you're dealing with a person that does have these core drivers and is also very unique and can be coming to the table from a variety of environments. You know, if you're an educator and you're working with younger students, you know, you're working against malnutrition, sleep deprivation, you know, um, potentially childhood trauma. And so it's not just like folks are entering the classroom in a, in a blank state. And those things are probably a little bit more acute at those early stages versus if someone's already a working professional, you know, they may have different levels of stability. 
um, around some of those core things. Um, and different skills they've developed, different supports they've received, different coping mechanism therapies, whatever it may be to help them be more successful at ha- handling those challenges that either are handed to them or that they encounter. So yeah, I think that's a really fair statement. You know, I heard something, I was talking with my colleagues yesterday about the golden rule we learned when we were little, treat others how you want to be treated. But now that's not the rule anymore. I've heard the statement that they flipped it and said, it's the platinum rule, treat others how they need to be treated, exactly. not how you need to be treated. And it's like decentering yourself and centering the person who is receiving service or receiving support. Yeah, I, I love that. That's an excellent level up. I think the golden rule can still work. It's a making the assumption that one, you love yourself, which is not, not everyone true. does, right? Yeah, honestly. Yeah. Um, and you believe in yourself. <laughs> um, and just at that level, you know, if you think about what you want afforded to you is grace and patience and understanding and someone to really see you and believe in you. So in that sense, yes, you know, I think that can still inform a great deal of successful strategies right off the bat. And then, yeah, the, the work from there is, okay, let me meet this individual, figure out exactly what they need. And if I'm really in service of them to get them to a different point or to accomplish a certain thing, I have to, you know, um, base it on what they need. And you've obviously done this, not just for individuals, but at scale, right? So building the college access, the to and through program at Harlem Village Academies, moving onward to your next endeavor when you are at college track and now, you know, at Google, it's not that you've done this for one, one person at a time. How, for folks that are listening, that are in the space of, of demanding and supporting and building success for other people, how do you do this at scale? How do you do this for groups of people? How do you create processes and systems that ensure this type of personalized help and attention for everyone? Yeah, great question. I think the first step is just recognizing that that's your task really is to build process and systems that will live beyond you and that change how things are experienced by a larger group of folks, again, both currently and in the future. Um, So if you're focusing on that, you know, when you're experimenting with individual tactics or you find, you know, pockets of innovation or success, your mind will immediately go to how do I codify this? How do I scale this? How do I turn this into a system or a rule or a policy? Um, and so that's an important mindset to have. There are a lot of practices that that help you do that. Um, one that I've always leaned on programmatically is solidifying a, a clear theory of change. You know, I read a social a Stanford Social Innovation Review article like early on in my career, and that really stuck with me. And it sounds so obvious, but so many programs, even at companies, you know, lack this basic foundation of a hypothesis of this action, A leads to B, leads to C, leads to D, you know, leads to E, like E would be our goal, let's say our long-term goal, but you haven't really mapped out what are some of the sub outcomes that will get you to that long-term goal and what are the key inputs that will drive those outcomes and why. And so something as simple as that, I've found really transformational because it allows you to, to build things more systemically. It allows you to reference things such as like guiding principles that are part of those key inputs that you can build on and flex in different ways, but they are still still have this strong core that's based on a researched, experienced hypothesis about this action is going to drive this out, outcome or result, and that's going to have a, you know, a domino effect for this, this, and this. So there is a way to add more rigor to that, whereas most people 
they get some of the inputs and they're like, yeah, we're going to do this. And then it's like magic's going to happen. And then we get this outcome. (laughs) You really need to connect those. Not quite. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, how do you think this is going to lead to this? And why do you think that? So that's an important one. I think the second one is focusing on influence as a big part of your role, no matter what your role is, even if you are a teacher, (laughs) you know, you play a role in influencing your school leadership and influencing district leadership politics. So a lot of the practices and things that you want to have in place, most of the time, you know, you're not going to have singular power over these things. And so the more you can not view that as a kind of dirty game and something to shy away from, we tend to call it like internal politics or, you know, playing the game or blah, blah, blah. But really it's just, you know, influencing people to make decisions that you think favor what you want to see happen, ultimately what you think is best for the populations that you're serving. And so view that as part of your job, like practice it, learn that skill. It doesn't need to feel manipulative. You can still be your authentic self in it with practice in terms of how you engage with these folks and why, especially when you're not doing it for personal benefit, but you're doing it again to create better outcomes for the people you're serving. Because ultimately that's how you're going to solidify a lot of these cultures and systems and practices and policies is uh, through influence. You're naming so much here that we could probably spin off and make six more podcasts. But one <laughs> I want to one I want to hone in on a little bit, especially as it relates to your current role, is this idea of what inputs you need to create in order to build systemic change and progress and proof. One of them, and I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about it a little bit, is attention to privilege and equity and diversity and inclusion. Can you talk about what in like your brain and in your world that looks like, what it sounds like, what it feels like, because it is very much a buzzword now to talk about DEI. And so let's use this space for the people who, who want to talk about and learn and grow and help their organizations better serve diverse populations and diverse communities um, with some of the knowledge that you've gained. Yeah, that's a lot to boil down, but I would say at the core of diversity, equity, and inclusion is a recognition and a centering of sub- subjectivity, honestly. I do think a lot of our issues stem from our core clinging to objectivity as this myth that we can be and we can create things that are objective in, in any way, anything <laughs> objective in any way right. is essentially impossible if it's created by a person <laughs> um, or executed by a person. And we haven't fully grappled with that yet. And so once you let go of that, you can pretty easily understand that each human experience is very different. Obviously, every experience is shaped by that individual and you know their perception is their reality. And so how do you build that would then implore you to think about, okay, Diversity just means differences, right? So obviously people are all different. Um, How do I make sure that I'm valuing those differences and actually making the most of them in, in, in our space? You know, equity is essentially, like you mentioned, everyone has what they need specifically to maximize their success. So that is obviously very individualized. It's very subjective based on that person's needs. And inclusion is just a sense of belonging and making sure everyone feels psychological safety, the environment is nurturing and supportive of that person bringing their full potential to this space. Because we also take that for granted that someone would want to give so much of themselves to a given, whether it's a workplace or a school experience, when really like that person's energy and talent and potential is kind of sacred. 
that's them. That's their life. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. We need to earn their contribution, their commitment to giving it to, to you or to giving it to that specific space. So that's what I view inclusion as. I appreciate you naming that. And also the point you led with, which is this is not something we could dissect and totally, you know, share out in a 40 minute podcast <laughs> on, on a, a very broad range of topics, but all of these matters, I think, when you're working with kids become magnified. So to go back to a comment you made earlier about the developmental changes that, that students are overcoming throughout their childhood, the, the, the traumas they may be facing, the food insecurity, et cetera. This is a very hot topic in education today where there's a charge for educators to lead with more empathy, to understand I like the term objectivity that you use to understand the experience they have is not the same as their students, regardless of the similarities they share and, and maybe the paths that, that align. But I wonder how, if at all, your perspective has changed being school-based to school-adjacent to supporting kids in programs as it relates to any and all of the topics we talked about, or as it relates to innovation and education. Do you think that you've changed how you view what is best for children throughout your career? And if so, how has that morphed? Yeah, I think I definitely have. And that's such a great question to reflect on because it's important to name it. Um, and I think honestly, even me in early stages of my engagement in education, I was still focused on the measures of success that we set as an institution, whether that was grades or acceptance to four-year college or graduation from four-year college, et cetera. Um, whereas, you know, now, and back then I had a sense, obviously, through my personal experience and just like my learning and looking back systemically to understand that all of those measures, to my point, are not objective. And we spend so much time focused on evaluation and sorting by innate ability, which is, in my opinion, negligible differences across people and less time focused on environments and leaning into learning and development. And again, thinking about that problem I just mentioned, like if everyone uh, operate from the assumption that everyone is great in a specific way, find out what that is and bring it out of them. We can't do that if we spend so much time focused on the evaluation and assessment and sorting and so much of education is focused on that. And I think I got caught up in that early on, too, because that was, you know, you give me a goal, I'm going to try to hit it. <laughs> I'm leading these programs. You're motivated. Life. Yeah, you're driven. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so but I think as I've gotten the benefit of getting some distance from it is really being able to reflect on that. And, you know, while I was in it, I was still cognizant of like the things that felt icky saying like, yeah, I can optimize these goals, but also I'm going to focus on loving this student. And also I'm going to focus on if going to college right now is not the best choice for you, I'm not going to force that, you know? Right. I'm going to put you in a bad financial situation. I'm not going to force that just to make the numbers look better. You know, so I, I always had that, I think, tendency, but um, now I'm way more focused on like, okay, systemically, that's just an entirely, you know, the approach that I talked about is just entirely missing the mark. And we can be more outcomes based. That's not the measures of success don't need to be these, again, kind of made up, 
BS, honestly, kind of measures. You can say that here. This is a safe space. (laughs) Testing, you know, all the measures that society put in place that are very subjective, clearly demonstrated to be biased, founded in racism, honestly. Um, We don't need to continue to stand on those, especially as like education becomes more decentralized. It's direct connections to the workplace increase with online learning, with for-profit institutions and companies actually leaning into the training and education space and thinking about, okay, is the goal to get a job? If so, let's directly connect those things. Or what is the goal to do? I believe it's to have in- improve the ability of someone to do something, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. Why, what would be the point of education if not? Right, to- choice. Let them choose. Let yeah. them choose the path they want to go down. Give them the ability, give them the, the skills, the talent, the And I specifically love the one you named love. And I know that the rent song is like playing in my head as I say it, but how do you measure love? Right? Because you cannot put an OKR or a KPI on love for kids. Like there is something deep and rich and true about loving a child as they are growing that is inexplicable. And I don't think it's something you can measure or correct me if I'm wrong. Is there a way to measure it? I think there is, but I also think that it's a, I think it's a lie that like, oh, everything important needs to be measured. (laughs) Fair, fair. I think again, part of the over-reliance on data, the obsession with data and analytics has gone a bit too far. Um, When there's so many things that, you know, we do as people that we can't even begin to wrap our minds around or quantify or measure. And then we pretend to understand all of our world by leaning into things like data analysis. So I understand the motivation to do that, to feel more control and feel like you understand everything, but the truth is you don't and you never will. And <laughs> at the peak of our accomplishments now and our progress within science and math, we understand a very, very, very small fraction of the world. And that includes the human brain and emotions. And so let's have a little humility when we approach these spaces where we're working with humans and that we don't fully understand everything that's going on and definitely can't measure it accurately. But I do think for the goals of the program, if you have a long enough time horizon, one, the the, the measure of love is baked into that. Because again, my hypothesis is, you know, yes, it's great. I, I can love someone just to love them. But through the nature of the program, I'm loving them because it's a strategy. Like love is a strategy in this case. It's to, It's what I think is required to get the outcomes that we desire. And so it doesn't mean, again, that they're going to neatly fall into whatever these sub-measures are that you set up. Like, are they coming to the site every day? What's their attendance record? Or, you know, again, are they getting to four-year college immediately? Are they staying, you know, in a four-year college each year, this semester, next semester? It's like some of that granularity, if you kind of fade that and think about long-term goals, then you can get more accurate measures of like, was this strategy effective? Because that was the path for that person, right? Like, so if we don't focus on that, we tend to sort those students out as failures and only serve the students that can meet these short-term bars um, that just, you know, tend to, again, sort students out instead of working with them to give them what they need. Um, so that's one way to measure. And then obviously, you know, surveys are always a way to <laughs> self-reported. Lots like, of surveys, lots of feedback. <laughs> Gather all of it. I've done a survey or seen a survey that has asked the student, like in a program, do you feel loved? in this world, you know, I think that would be a great question to ask. (laughs) I think it would be phenomenal. How how does, how does the person that you named that you feel loved by, how do they show it? How do you know they love you? Right? Like 
I don't know. I also think there's this emotional intelligence that we can help grow in kids by naming that for them, that like, we value this. We value that you feel loved and that you know someone cares about your well-being and your success, however you define that. And so we're going to help and measure our own efficacy at making you feel that way. Right. I, I love you. You said this thing before, which is everyone is great. It's everyone is great. You have to find that out, what, find out what it is and bring it out of them. And I love that. I think it relates to this notion you're naming that like our systems are corrupt and we are all people, not numbers. And so even when you scale things and make them big, everyone at the end of the line, that last stakeholder, each end user is one person who matters. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's important. <laughs> and it's difficult if you're passionate about a certain space, you want to maximize impact, right? And you want to scale things. And then if that becomes your world, you can get overly focused on the numbers and, you know, your only representation of your users or your, you know, the people you're serving become these numbers. And so that's always an important thing to go back to is identifying and honing in on an individual there just to keep some connection to what that experience is and the people you're serving and the impact. Because even if it's, you know, oh, only 10% of students, blah, 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 or 10% of this and that, you know, we view that as a failure. But again, if you talk to one of the people within that 10%, um, and you can see if, some, you know, that something's life-changing to them, what, why minimize that? You know, that, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. How many stories do we have of people that were in the smaller part of the percentage that have done amazing things, incredible things that no one ever thought possible of them? Uh, is that's, that's the story at the end of the day. And like, I feel like my heart has grown 10 times over during the course of this conversation, Jonathan. I feel like you're leading so many important efforts in and around education with people at the center of them. And I, I think that's incredible. That's really, truly incredible. I, I imagine the impact you're having, whether you know it or not, on so many people who surround you. It's just, it's, it's amazing. It's incredible. It's really great that someone as, as impactful and as big as, as Google has someone with your lens leading important in initiatives and efforts and programs. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> um, it's one of my criteria for professional endeavors, uh, in addition to enjoyment and growth is impact. So, and, you know, I'm just not going to be motivated to do something if I don't think it's going to have a meaningful, positive impact. Um, and again, at this stage in my, my career, I have the fortune to be able to pick and choose opportunities and ways of working that I think will maximize that impact. So it comes with all that growth and all that perspective that you're naming, right? There's so many, you've put a lot of seeds down in the ground that you followed along the way in order to, to, to be where you are and, and really pick and choose where you put your energy and attention and effort. And that that's a message onto itself for, for kids or even for educators. I wonder if you think about educators today and how your journey as an educator has, has morphed and shift. And as you name been circuitous, what would you advise someone starting out in education who wants to have a global impact? What would you suggest that they do or pursue whether in the classroom or beyond the classroom to help them on their journey? 
Yeah, I mean, well, one, just to start, you know, my, my mother was a, a New York City public school teacher for my entire life, and that she retired in that role. Um, my sister has been a teacher um, for a long time as well, and so... There's I'm, always someone, there's always yeah. someone who, is, who you can point to. I love it. Exactly. I, there, this is a theme for me, Jonathan. The people who are not teachers themselves will always say, well, someone I love deeply pursued this path, and it's, it's such a noble path. Yeah. And I think anyone who has that touch point has deep respect for that profession because you know it intimately. And so I wouldn't even count myself as an educator per se. And I don't think I'm deserving of that title you know, <laughs> compared to what real educators do um, day in and day out. And so I think like one, you know, recognizing how important your the role you occupy is in that space is, even when the signals you get every day might be um Kind of might contradict that, <laughs> both in terms of how you're treated, how you're paid, how society views you, even a lot of like education strategy focus on like teacher assessment and weeding out bad teachers and all this and that, again, instead of focusing on environments and learning and development for, for teachers and educators. Um, so starting, you know, solidifying that understanding of what you're doing is extremely valuable and taking that responsibility seriously and I know we're all humans as well, and you need your rest and recovery so that when you're showing up in these spaces, you are being your best self. And unfortunately, when you're working with young people, the bar is higher in terms of the energy you need to bring to a space, the, the love, the kindness that you need to consistently bring to a space, because one or two words or statements or things here and there really impact students. And, you know, I've had experiences in my career where I remember specifically one you know, lines, specific lines said by teachers or other educators to me that have impacted how I viewed myself in the paths I've taken. So that's a huge responsibility. And you know, I know it's um, not an easy weight to carry, but if it's one you choose to take on, then, you know, there, there's things you got to do to make sure you, you live through on that. So starting with that and like really solidifying your base, your self-care so that you can continue to show up in that space in the way you need to is a good one. And then like you mentioned, I think Viewing your role is beyond, you know, I know you're, you're the kind of, you run your classrooms, obviously. <laughs> um, but thinking about beyond that space, your ability to influence, again, systems, structures, policies within your school, within the district, et cetera. Um, and recognizing that education sits at the intersection of so many things, whether we like it or not. You know, you, you are involved in health, <laughs> mental and physical. You are involved in economics and housing and um, family um, dynamics and workplace. You're like, education is, is you know, everything shows up and is relevant in that space. Yeah. And so unfortunately, that's something you can't choose to ignore either. And I understand that's not a fair bur burden as well, where it's like, we can't be teachers and babysitters and counselors and therapists and, you know, career coaches and all this and this and that. Um, so I get it. But to be versed in those categories, at least, is going to help you be a better educator at the end of the day, um, because the world, unfortunately, isn't, you know, categorized into these things, right? Like, students show up with everything, whether you want them to or not. hundred <laughs> percent, yeah. So those are, yeah, some, I guess, key pieces, but again, I wouldn't even qualify myself as an educator. I only know from the outside looking in of what that experience can be like. You know, I've done some after-school programs trying to teach courses and taught like one college course in HVA for like one session a week. And 
It was rough. I was going to say, how did that go? <laughs> no, I recognize I don't have a lot of the core skill sets of a, you know, an educator. Right. <laughs> well, it, you know, you're being humble and you sure have a lot of them, but I think, you know, there's this piece of all of this, which, you know, you say there's a lot of burdens that educators carry. Um, and so the folks who support and lead educators need to recognize that too. And society needs to recognize that. Mm-hmm. So we could have a whole other discussion, I'm sure, about how we, how we revere teachers, how we treat teachers, how we compensate teachers. It's a common theme on this podcast that we need to be doing better as a society. But I wonder now, like, if you could take anything, you know, you're in the private sector, and I'm wondering if you would take anything from the private sector to advise school leaders and people who support teachers and how this is like the opposite of the question now, like how they can better ensure the emotional nurturement, the success, the, the, the psychological safety of their teams, uh, especially right now after the past two years that teachers have really endured. What, what, what could you maybe bring to them that you feel like might be really impactful? Mm. I don't know how impactful it would be, honestly, because I'm not sure the private sector has done a great job, <laughs> but, you know. That's I mean, fair. That's a fair statement. Yeah, honestly. I mean, but where you can provide flexibility, you know, that's always important. I know it can be difficult in schools when you have to think about finding coverage or, you know, finding a substitute teacher is a lot different than finding someone to cover this project at work. Um, sure. People need to step away. They need to step away at the end of the day. And, like, them being there is actually a net negative in some cases. Um, so uh, for, uh, having that flexibility, again, just starting with caring about the people first. And again, you know, you're not driving robots here to, you know, keep churning out these outcomes against everything else. Like, and so I, again, I think even the private sector wasn't as quick and as comprehensive in the recognition of like how impactful the last year and a half has been on individuals, you know, mentally, but also physically, logistically, like our lives has changed, have changed drastically. And so the more we can at least pay attention to that, um, the better. I also think, I mean, this is not necessarily to do with self-care, but it could help just with the effectiveness. One of the, one of the best things I would love to see, you know, migrate from the private sector to education is like UX and psychology, honestly, about user engagement, like, businesses for better and worse have kind of perfected the ones that are successful engagement (laughs) a lot of times education is trying to optimize for that and they're not one they're not recognizing that they're competing now with social media with the internet they're competing with entrepreneurship with stock trading they're competing with so many other things that are like optimizing uh, grabbing and keeping attention um, and, you know, we, we can demonize social media for it or we can compete with them <laughs> like we need to right, um, right. to create experiences that are more engaging. It, user experience is, you know, a technical discipline that is really focused on that. Right. And so I don't think we can ignore that in education. I'm sure it shows up in ed tech in places, but you can think systemically about it, too. And, you know, think like, why would if, if a student wasn't forced to be at school? Would they come voluntarily and why? You know, how have I set it up, set up an experience that, that is that compelling, you know, to, to engage them? Because if you look at what they're able to do in other places where they, their engagement has been optimized <laughs> and there's teams of 
scientists essentially um, and technicians working on keeping, capturing and keeping their intention and engagement. Um, they do well. They they show up well on those spaces. Right. They're they're engaged. They're active. They're connected. Oh, they're yeah, they're no participating. That's absolutely yeah. true. We'll show up to school and we think, oh well, they're just you know they have ADHD or something, or they can't focus and blah blah blah. Yeah. There we go with those categories again, right? Exactly. But they're clocking hours on social media or in gaming because it isn't. It's provide. It's meeting some certain needs, social status, you know, it's providing some sort of engagement, mental stimulation, challenge to accomplish things, you know, sense of connectedness. They have I was just going to say connectedness, I think yeah. is huge on that front. Exactly. So the bar is high for what education is competing with now, probably more so than it's ever been. And so I still think we kind of need to catch up to that and start to really like that's a battle you need to fight <laughs> if you really want to capture the engagement and energy of students. Jonathan, I feel like we just ended with like a little bit of a bomb here, right? So we got this theme about caring about teachers and caring about people and caring about them as individuals, which has been throughout this conversation. But then you ended with something that is so big and so powerful, which is to think about the UX, the user experience. If you're if you're listening to this podcast and you're not really familiar with what that term means, there's a go do a deep dive. There's a deep dive on Google itself. Actually, you could probably spend hours learning about what UX is and how game designers utilize the the psychology and science behind it. And teachers more than ever are now pursuing UX degrees and and studying user experience in order to either optimize their classroom or also, you know, exit the classroom mm -hmm. to help build better system structures and tools that teachers can use to engage kids. So I feel like it's a great place to end our, our chat today because it is one that leads to a Pandora's box of thinking and for our listeners and for me. And so I just want to say, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so grateful that you were here on today's podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been great to honestly just reflect on the my own experiences and to share them with the hopes that any part of it can be helpful to, you know, anybody working in this space. Again, I think it's just so important, you know, as a society, like there's no way we can make progress from where we're at now to all the things we need to see happen without thoroughly investing and thinking even more drastically about how we revolutionize developing our young people and adults, honestly. So this is like the core. This is, this is the battleground, I think. Absolutely. This is the work that I will almost guarantee that every single person listening here today is invested in because it's our duty. It's our duty to be better than the people before us and to leave the world better than how we came into it. So I really appreciate the work you're doing and for you sharing all of that with our listeners. Thank you again, Jonathan. And thanks for everybody who tuned in today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Be the first to know when we have a new episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion for an episode, email us at podcast at itutor.com.